Hi, I'm Ron Coleman, a partner in the Dillon Law Group, social media legend and free speech enthusiast. When I started the Coleman Nation podcast in the spring of 2021, its focus was on free expression and censorship on the internet. But as important as that subject is to me, which is very important, I felt hemmed in in the podcast. I wanted to spend more time talking to the interesting people I've met in my legal and free speech work without feeling a need to have them all make the same point. So I culminated the first series of the podcast and have started the second series. I hope you'll enjoy these conversations as much as I have recording them. Hi, culminators. We're back in a chilly Newark, on a chilly, not in a chilly. I wouldn't mind a chilly. It would be appropriate considering how cold it is outside. We're back on a chilly day in Newark. You know what happens when you get old? I want my guest to listen closely because he's, a, he's very far from old. When you get old, you look at ice very differently. You're really scared of ice. I'm only 60. It might be by the time you listen to this, I'll be 61. My birthday is in March. But, you know, when you're in your 20s, much less when you're younger and you fall down, you get up. Old people like me, and I'm in the best shape I've been in in almost my entire life, but it's that ice is unforgiving. So it's a cold, icy day in Newark, but not here at Culmination. No, we're going to speak to a, a heartwarming person with a heartwarming story. We're talking to Ari David, and he's the founder of Upward News. And let's face it, folks, here's a picture of what that uh, website looks like. Trusted by 300,000 readers. That's They're just starting here. They are trying to break through the media morass, the mess that has been made of our corporate news and information sector. Ari, thanks for joining us. How are you doing? I'm doing great, Ron. Thank you so much for having me. I've been looking forward to this for a while. Well, I am very happy that you have made it. And... Uh, in so many ways, you've made it. You have a you have a very interesting story. Like me, you are uh, the product of of an immigrant experience, and I think I you know I always say this. I do think that those of us who have that background um, have a greater appreciation for what America, how great America is. Now, I used to say that, but then I look out on the streets and see the, the protests violent, nasty, anti-American protests by, what's the term? Refugees. Refugees. They don't seem very appreciative of America at all. All right, but maybe we'll talk about that. First, I want to introduce folks to you, to your story, and to Upward News. Were you born in the United States? Yeah, sure was, in Baltimore. Thank, well, is that still part of the United States? Actually, I'm not sure. <laughs> okay. Your parents, however, are not American-born, right? No, both born in Moscow. So, you know, in some respects, when you're talking about this kind of appreciation of liberty thing, it seems that people from the Eastern Bloc, and my mother was from Cuba, which wasn't part of the Eastern Bloc when she lived there, but she was an immigrant from a an unfree country. Unlike again, immigrants from some other parts of the world, it does seem that people from the former Soviet bloc 
have an incredible appreciation for the American experience. How how old were they when they came here? Uh, my mom was 26. So actually my age right now when she got here. And you are 14, right? <laughs> exactly. Yeah. <laughs> I, I... <laughs> was the, did they leave before or after the fall of the Soviet Union? After? They left right after. Yeah, right it was... After. Uh, there were a lot of people that left beforehand. They were really lucky to. You had to have like a kind of like advanced degrees and like connections and to be able to get out of there. And it was a very, very complicated process. And then after it fell, it was still complicated, but uh, there were a lot of organizations in America that were helping uh, Russian Jews get out of there, especially as like the situation was getting worse and worse. And there were like swastikas everywhere. And so uh, there were a lot of people here in the country that were doing as much as they could to help them. You know, I don't think a lot of people are aware of that. I, I have to admit that that's pretty back of mind to me, that there was a there was sort of a moment of of uh, anti-Jewish reaction during that period when the when the Soviet Union fell. Yeah, I'm not an expert on that uh, whole period of history, but you weren't born I mean, yet, obviously. So right. <laughs> although you got books there, I see I, I see books. I try to read them. Uh, there, there was anti-Semitism like all throughout the Soviet Union uh, and even beforehand during the Tsarist part of Russia. Uh, and I guess after the collapse, when everything started getting crazy, there was definitely an element of lawlessness to it. And like the stories that I've heard is just people would break into Jewish apartments and Jewish homes and they would uh, loot them, uh, vandalize, and there was pretty much no law. So nobody would get in trouble. And that's just kind of the reality of, I guess, like the early 90s in Russia. Yeah, I mean, during the Brezhnev era, Jews still had, as they had during, you tell me if anything I'm telling you sounds wrong, but I wasn't in Russia, but I was living did have the the J in their in their passports in their internal passports so everyone knew if a person was Jewish or not um but and, and of course there was an, an increasing amount of repression in connection with people who wanted to emigrate you had the entire phenomenon of the refuseniks on the other hand the Brezhnev regime in its uh, you know and then obviously going into the those into the garbage garbage era uh always wanted to project an image of stability. That was of great importance to them, especially to the party. So they didn't like lots of, they didn't like violence. But when things got a little anarchic in 89, 90, people took it out. And why the Jews? Why not the Jews? I mean, it wasn't as if the Jews were in any, were even remotely in charge of anything. We're not talking about Trotsky and and the Jewish section of the of the Communist Party. Uh, you know, we're talking about the Bolshevik era. The Jews had had been pretty much removed from power, but okay, they they wanted to leave. Your parents left, they and they chose Baltimore. Well, they came in through New York City. And then from there, I mean, you had like a list of choices of where you would want to go. What's and wrong I with think... Brighton Beach? <laughs> yeah, that's, uh, that's a good question. I was actually talking to my parents about this recently. They didn't want to be in like a city like that, uh, from my understanding. Uh, because they didn't so... want to be in, in a little Odessa kind of situation? Or they right, didn't right. be in I, Brighton I, Beach, where I grew up, by the way. I don't know if you realize that. No, I didn't know that. No, how would you yeah, know I, that? I... <laughs> no reason you would know that. So, yeah, I assume uh, by some kind of coincidences and people helping out, they ended up in Baltimore, where there's 
uh, th there's a sizable Russian Jewish community there. It's not like New York City, of course, or even Miami. Uh, it's closer to, I guess, like Philadelphia and what that looks like. Now, is this, this is is this part of the Baltimore Jewish community section, or is this part of more like an inner city Baltimore? With the no, this is like more in the county. Yeah. So, college, normal experience, you know. Normal, you, yeah. You so, where'd you go to school? I went to University of Maryland, and so when I got there, um, the way I see it is that I was born like the first year of Gen Z, and so when I was in like high school and middle school, the amount of like progressivism that was like very obvious was limited. Uh, it was like getting there. There were like kind of slow, subtle changes of the way that schools were talking about politics. But it wasn't until I got to college and like the first year there where I was like, this is a completely different world. Like uh, we had uh, an orientation there like the first week and we get name tags. We have to put our pronouns. And so like this is just unheard of. I have no idea what this even is. When, right, so when did you graduate? I graduated 2018. 2018. Okay. So you're really in that, you're really there during that transitional time when things start really kicking in because as late because in 2014 to 2018 you could still say that this disease had really to a large extent only taken over the state universities to a, you know and and certain certain private schools um it wasn't as it is now it's 2024 where virtually all of academia and certainly the private schools, including the Ivy League, are afflicted by this. So, but you had a normal high school experience where men were men and girls were girls and boys were boys. And then all of a sudden you were putting your, you, okay, fine. So you said, okay, I'm going to, I'm, I'm open-minded. I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to see what this is about. Or did you say, that, immediately did you say, this is, this is nonsense. What the hell's going on here? Yeah, my reaction was to kind of make jokes with the pronouns and like put in like, I guess what everyone does now that doesn't agree with pronouns is they make a little joke out of it and put something funny on there. And so that's was my gut instinct. I was like, I don't really understand why this needs to be taken seriously. And I was a little shocked that it wasn't taken well among uh, the, the other college students and also the, the people that were like running the whole show. Did you find a based crowd to hang out with or were you pretty much just dodging bullets during that time or do you just learn to keep your mouth shut which is what most college students do who are who yeah are well besides like for the craziness stuff uh that was going on there i pretty much just decided i was not going to get into it i was just not going to think about it uh, i mean like i'm in college i'm here to get a degree i was there to go to classes and also uh, have fun <laughs> and so i was focused on that it's whenever i would like come across a lot of this uh, crazy knots and stuff. And I majored in computer science. So like most of my classes that I had to take there, they were science-based. They couldn't really figure out how to sneak in the progressivism in there just yet. I think it's a little bit different now. Um, and the general like courses that you have to take as requirements, those are the classes where all that stuff came from. And that was like a very small part of my like education there. So I kind of dealt with it as I had to. Uh, it was really interesting, though. The first year I was there, I signed up for a history class because I love history. And that kind of knocked out one of my general credits. Uh, and it was about like American history and slavery. And um, it was very progressive. But 
I was very naive to the point where like, I just thought this was a regular history class. And I remember coming home and like talking to my parents about, you know, how tough it is uh, for a lot of minorities in America and, you know, how rigged the system is against them and all of this stuff that everyone talks about now uh, on the progressive side. And they looked at me like from their immigrant perspective and how they got here and like how hard they had to work for this and that compared to all the other people that were doing uh, not trying, et cetera. Um, and so I just like looked at them. I couldn't even like believe what they were saying. I, I was totally brainwashed after one quick semester of really? being there. Yeah. How did, how did that, how'd you get out of that without, did your parents, was it because of listening to your parents? I mean, what kid comes back from college and listens to his parents? Yeah, no, I didn't listen to them. <laughs> yeah, that, that would not be normal. I'm not sure I would even want to continue with this interview. Yeah. Uh, so I didn't listen to them, but I kind of brushed it off. Um, it wasn't like such a big part of my identity. Like, I think a lot of people when they, uh, I guess, get brainwashed in college, it becomes like the only thing they think about. Uh, it didn't really happen to me. And so... And of course, these weren't, this was not your, like, it wasn't like you were majoring in gender studies or even, or even in history. Right. It was just one history class. That, that was it. The history class was over. I moved on. Uh, there were some other classes that I took that had some elements like that, but nothing as, um, I guess, exciting as that class was because I love history. I love kind of, I guess I've had this inclination to figure out what's going on. And so that class impacted me so much. Um, and I wasn't really expecting or uh, smart enough to know that there were other ag agendas going on and that the professor might be teaching from his own perspective for a specific political reason. And so I went for like the next, I guess, uh, that was my freshman year of college. And let then, me just ask, let me, let me just ask you this. My, did you by any chance read selections from Sean Malentz's book, No Property no. in Man? No? No, no. You know why you didn't? Because Sean Malentz, who was my professor at Princeton, um, and is still at Princeton. He's he is getting to be rather old. Um, is a progressive. His wife is, is an editor at the Nation, but he wrote this book, arguing that contrary to the accepted um, narrative, there was never a there there has been a longstanding problem with American with, with slavery in American culture and that this was a this was a fight that went back to the time of the founding in other words you, the narrative is the entire premise of the American Republic was protection of slavery so it's no surprise that you didn't read this book because it went contrary to that narrative but it's a very good book and I recommend it I'm so happy with everything else my friend Sean has written or uttered since since then, but he's a very nice guy. Okay, so, so meanwhile, you're, you're going back to the computers, z zeros and ones, right? They they don't, they, there's no favoritism there. E either, either the compiler runs or it doesn't run, right? Yeah, that was the beauty of it. Like, it was just, you go there, you learn this stuff. There's no arguing the morality of uh, different algorithms that we're uh, putting together. And that was that. And so when I saw like the year after that, that Trump won, I mean, I had no idea what was going on. Like I said, I tried to tune out of politics. I'd been like that my whole life where I didn't really think that politics was so important to kind of be aware of like news was happening. What am I going to really do about it? Like, I'm just here to, I guess, do whatever I'm doing. And so Trump won. That was a complete shock. Um, not a shock for me. It was a shock seeing everyone else so shocked. 
uh, like I was like, okay, something I think is going on here. And it's not because Trump won, but because people are freaking out so much. So that was a like little interesting thing that I noted. Uh, and so I guess the year after that, when I was a junior in college, that's when I really kind of started seeing that Trump's election changed everything and the way that people are talking about what's going on and like the way that people like even in Greek life are talking about like politics and stuff like that. And it's just getting so progressive where I want to ignore it. I don't want to be a part of it, but it's just, it's coming at me from every angle. Did you, so, find uh, in, 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 did you find it in the, what you call the Greek environment in, in frats that, I mean, that's historically been an environment where guys say what they really mean, what they really feel. Were, were they pro-Trump? You know, I don't know what frat you were in. I don't know if you necessarily want to name it, but or, or was it more like everybody was signing on to be against Trump? Because that was that was what what we young people do. Well, I'm kind of curious how that. Yeah. So I'll tell you what happened. So essentially, the sororities uh, are very woke, full on progressive. Uh, oh, you spent they're... you spent more time in sororities. This is a man after my own heart. Very good. OK, good. <laughs> I'll tell you I'll tell you why this matters. And so uh, all of the fraternities, all of the guys that want to be closer with these sororities, they pretty much adopt the whole lingo. They adopt the way they're talking about uh, things. They and start this is the hosting. entire path of the beta male, of the feminist man. This must be what I need to say to get laid. So fine, fine. As long as, okay, good. All right. As long as I don't actually actually have to respect women, but if I say the right things, good. All right. So, so that was the environment that was percolating in the frats. Okay. Yeah, it, it was a very heavy, like virtue signaling thing. And so a lot of fraternities were holding events for, I guess, a lot of like the, the social justice stuff that's going on on campus, like uh, all of these different fads and each fraternity is trying to hold uh, better events that more sororities go to, et cetera, et cetera. And so even in Greek life, which most people would like associate with, uh, these are guys that are uh, just they're unapologetic and they're not really into politics. They're just who they are. It was kind of the complete opposite. Like it pretty much swallowed up all of Greek life from at least my perspective. That made this interview worth it just to get that snapshot. That, that, I mean, because that's such a perversion of how, you know, you know, frats historically were like the, the, the last bastion of male, Honesty, for better or for worse, very often for worse. But here, it's all about running after the running after the the powerless, colonialized, oppressed chicks. Okay, so things be, you become all of a sudden you're becoming much more conscious because conscious of this because it's it's everywhere, it's everywhere. It's it's in this, it's part of the social life. So even though you're not in a politically oriented major it's the social events it's the talk it's the it's the it's the signaling yeah exactly and so i'm trying to figure out what's going on at this point there were a couple of times where i stumbled across i guess those classic ben shapiro and the the liberals videos where it's destroying that's like whatever argument is being thrown at him and i was watching this with my roommate at the time and we're like watching this video as if like this is some kind of contraband. Like people shouldn't know that we're like looking at this. You know, we turn the volume down a little bit like, all right, let's hit the Ben Shapiro video. Let's see what it's talking about. And the stuff that he was saying, and like if we look back at it today, it's not anything extreme at all. It's really moderate stuff. Like I was looking at that and I was like, I've never heard these, this, these kinds of things before. In fact, um, back then, back then, Ben was still not even remotely on the Trump train. He was... 
he was really not not so MAGA by any stretch of the imagination. Yeah, exactly. And so, like, I'm just going to, I'm showing how like much of a liberal environment that I was in that it seemed like watching Ben Shapiro on YouTube was like a dangerous endeavor, uh, at least kind of risky. And so I went, I was watching this stuff that was essentially like a gateway drug. And I think that's like kind of a great way to look at what Ben Shapiro does in a lot of ways is that he brings on a lot of people to, I guess, see that there's much more to politics uh, and opens up the door to go into other things. And so I start kind of tuning in more. I start going down the rabbit hole of a lot of different uh, phenomenons and problems in society. And I'm really starting to kind of check the narratives that are happening. And so it's a slippery slope. <laughs> and uh, where it ends is that you have a news outlet that you're building and you're trying to debunk all of the mainstream narratives on a daily basis. So by the time you got to college, did you know that's that 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 was what you wanted to do? No, absolutely not. All um, right, so how did I that had, happen? Yeah, so I had gone to college for like a paradoxical reason. I'd only gone there to pay off my college loans. And so as a son of immigrants, like you have to go to college. Uh, that's just something like that's expected of you. You're given such a great opportunity being in America uh, and have access to go to college. And so I was always going to do that. Uh, computer science was one of those degrees that I saw where you can get a job really easily afterwards and it's not hard to pay off whatever debt that you're going to be in from college. So it made a lot of sense in my head. Okay, I'm just going to do computer science. I'm going to get a job. I'm going to pay off the loans and then I'll figure out what I really want to do. And that's kind of exactly what happened. I spent about three years in the tech industry. I was working there and it was really good stuff in terms of like computer science is intellectually stimulating. Uh, it might not be specifically meaningful for everyone. And that's what I was really looking for. And so during the 2020 election where I was looking at social media and I was seeing all of my friends from college posting incredibly radical types of content. And this is like really during the heat of the BLM riots across the country um, and like the starting of like the pandemic and all of this stuff. I realized that a lot of a lot of the existing people on the right that were trying to shed some light on these issues and trying to get the points across that these things that are going around, they're not necessarily true. I noticed that they weren't doing a really good job of addressing what's happening on social media. Like at a time where people my age, they're posting black squares, um, the Ben Shapiro and the PragerU videos weren't really cutting into, cutting into that and being able to make, I guess, the impact that I thought they should be making. So my gut instinct was I'm deleting social media. <laughs> I'm out of this, like the same kind of instinct I had before. Like, I just don't want to see this stuff. And so I did that. I got back on about a month later. I saw I had not changed at all. I thought it was like a, a little temporary part of history, I guess, of people posting that stuff. And so at that point, I realized, okay, I'm going to do something about this. And I created an Instagram account and I started creating graphics that were just debunking all of the other viral graphics that were going around. And by the time of the where, Trump where election, did you, where did you go for the information that you used to build these graphics and, and the like? Yeah, well, one of the cool things about computer science is that you get really good at Googling how to solve problems all the time. I think that's like half the job of like being a programmer. Well, now we have AI, so I don't know how much left uh, of it is, but. Yeah, I was really good at just Googling and using search engines to figure but out. But you were like, relying on Google, which which you must have figured out at a certain point, wasn't necessarily about giving you the most accurate 
search result in terms of bias. Yeah. But it, it wasn't that bad then. I think at that point, Google was still focused on being an actual business and having a function that worked well. And then after the 2020 election got closer and we hit the pandemic, at that point, they pretty much sacrificed like all utility to become like an ideological tool that only shows you what they want to see. Uh, and, and this is really crazy now, by the way, like I realized with anything regarding to the pandemic and the vaccines, you can't even use Google. Like they won't show you anything. Now, uh, was no this is this the account or was this is this later upward news? This account? is this is the account. It went through a couple of iterations of uh, names and branding and all of that. But yeah, this is the account from day one. So so Instagram is the is the heart is the root of this of, of this enterprise, and you're using yeah, graphics were... because Instagram is about visuals. That's right. I looked at all the different platforms. I saw that Instagram was where regular people my age were going to on a daily basis to catch up with their friends and to see what's going on. I think there's some statistics that show that uh, in terms of like how like Gen Z and millennials get their news, like Instagram is still very high up there. And so I saw that. I saw that uh, the other part of the right that was on Instagram was not really doing a great job being able to capitalize, I guess, on like the heat of the moment in terms of like democratic energy. And so I started creating graphics on there and they took off pretty well. Uh, it, it wasn't easy. Um, and there was a lot of stuff that I was doing that I didn't realize until later was actually journalism um, and doing research and like trying to go through different stories and see all the different perspectives, looking through like different studies, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but it felt really natural. And there was a cause, you know, I, I was really driven by the fact that I'd seen uh, people that I went to school with just adopting this stuff, I guess, mindlessly. Um, and I figured maybe it's because they haven't seen the other side of things. And so I don't really know how many of those original people kind of changed their minds uh, from seeing those graphics. But um, the amount of support and the amount of people that started following the account, like there was clearly something that we were doing that was really great. Um, and another thing that I think was our strength was that a lot of people on the right at the time were, first of all, they were trying to like debunk people like they, in, a, in a, I guess, an aggressive way where they weren't, I guess, compassionate to the fact that maybe these people don't want to be yelled at, but they just want to be talked to. Uh, and maybe they don't want to have to rely on your opinions and they just want to see like, I guess, facts. And so what we did is we wrote everything in a way that would make it so that people that believe this stuff already would not be af afraid to share it with their liberal friends. Like we made sure that the tonality of it, the phrasing, um, the way that we wrote things, it's a little bit different now, but back then we were making sure that all of this stuff is really palatable towards people that uh, from a gut instinct might be like, what is this stuff? Because I remember how it was like watching my first Ben Shapiro video. Um, and so that it's was like, the original. You're talking about of, your talking about your first joint or something, you know? <laughs> literally, literally, that's, that's exactly how it feels. Um, and so, yeah, we grew really fast in that early period of 2020. You're still in college. Am I still in college? No, you, when, when this is happening. No, I was already out of college. I was out of college for, I think, like two years. You're, okay, so you started you started Upward News, a game, like, a, a, no story about the name, right? It was just something that you thought of. It was called Freedom for Facts when it first started. Oh, an homage to to Ben Shapiro. 
facts don't care about your feelings. I guess so. I guess facts so, yeah. need to be free in order to in order to in order to be uh, you know known. Right. Um, did you? Were you? When did you? When did you start making a living from this? You're out of college two years, and playing Instagram. Your and your your parents said. Okay, Ari, you're doing a very good job now. You have a college degree. You are American. You are going to work for what? Raytheon, IBM, and you said, "No, I'm gonna, I'm gonna go on Instagram." Is that was that how it went? That sounds exactly like it. You got the accent <laughs> down perfectly. In terms of like making the living on this thing, we're still working on that. Um, uh -huh, fair in enough. terms of like, it, it's a very much like a startup. We're very scrappy. Uh, we've got a lot of people that are helping out now. Everyone's on a part-time basis. Um, but we're making a lot of progress. We're still, there's a bunch of new readers that we're getting on a weekly basis. Um, and so tell, me about, bit... tell me about the team who, how many people are involved? Who does what? What's the story? Yeah. So, um, we have at this point, copy editors, we have editors, we have writers. Um, these are people that I've gotten connected with, like through the Instagram and then through mutual connections. And I've always been wanting to find people that are hungry to guess, uh, to make a name for themselves, especially like in the journalism world and that are really passionate about this stuff. And so the result is that like, we're a team of like very young people, uh, all of the writers, like they're either finishing up college, just out of college or, uh, have been out of college for a little bit, um, and are doing this because they're finding a lot of meaning in it. And the result is, is that like, we're able to put out like really good work um, with a passion that I think a lot of maybe corporate journalists don't really have specifically in this uh, side of the world. Um, and our editorial standards are like insanely high. And so uh, the writers love the fact that uh, we're all really tough on each other. And so like we put out a morning newsletter every single day where we cover the biggest stories of yesterday and we try to write about trends that maybe other sites aren't catching up on. And we have like internal debates on these things all the time. And uh, we try to make sure that the, the phrasing is proper, uh, the actual editorial process itself with like the fact checking is really rigorous. Um, and we're really proud of it. Like we've had a lot of people send in emails uh, to get in touch with us and they're like, hey, can we speak like, can we get in touch with like corporate and stuff like that? I'm like, this is just a few people, you know? Um, and so that's kind of what it looks like behind the scenes, but it's a lot of young Americans that are just really passionate about the truth um, and making, putting out really good work. Who do you consider to be, I mean, are you trying to compete with Daily Wire? No. Why not? What is it? I mean, okay, they, they're a media, they're a media thing, is, but they do have, in other words, there are there's the Federalist. How are you guys different from all the other conservative alternative media sources that that have developed over the you know on, on on social media over the last five years? Well, the way that I look at it is that we don't really have a need to have opinions ever. And so like that's one of our strict policies is that whenever we write articles, no opinion should ever be in there. We're never gonna have op-eds. Um, and so our articles should be looking more like uh, a New York Times article or maybe even an Axios article than they should looking like um, some of the other uh, sites on the right. And the we New also Times write an article from from maybe 15 years ago. Yeah, exactly. Sorry. Need need to uh, correct that there. <laughs> and um, so we're very focused on making sure that our personal biases uh, aren't coming out in sensational ways. Um, and we're trying to be ahead of the, the game on the right, specifically on being able to 
have a really high editorial process, which I think that a lot of outlets are still catching up on on the right in terms of making sure that their articles read very well. They're entertaining to read. Uh, and this thing that you're pulling up right now, this is something we made transparent actually a few weeks it's ago. Fascinating. Yeah. We, we pretty much created a rubric for how we want our articles to look like. Because as I was bringing on new writers, I realized it's very important to keep people uh, aligned on the mission that we have here. And so I put this thing together and I realized, wow. you know what, it'd be actually great for our readers to see exactly what the formula is for our articles and what we're trying to achieve. And so you'll see there that, of course, it's important for things to be engaging, uh, but even more so, it's important to be using concrete data, uh, to be making sure that we're not using opinions, that things aren't uh, biased in the way that we phrase them. And so whereas another outlet on the right might have like a specific kind of mission of debunking the left, which we started out like that. We're not like that anymore. We now have like the mission of, we wanna make sure that people that read our stuff understand the world and what's actually going on. We're not here to convince them to like think this is evil or that's evil or this way over another way. We just wanna make sure that when we're writing our articles uh, and they're reading it, that they're understanding what's going on a little bit better. And this is the whole point of supposed to be of the New York Times, right? But if people are just reading the New York Times, they're going to have a totally warped view of what's going on. For example, like 2016 election. Like if you were just reading the New York Times, of course, you're going to rip your hair out when you find out that Trump wins. And clearly they had gone astray from their mission of trying to actually report reality. And so when I look at what can we be doing for our readers, we're a tool. We're not an ideological driven mission anymore. We're just a tool that's there to be able to make sure that people are informed. So what's the plan? Long-term? How do you, well, no, nah, forget long-term. There's no, you know, everyone has a plan until they get punched in the face, right? What, what, what is the, what, like, what are you working on to, to build this program into a business that can sustain, you know, sustain itself? Uh, I see that, uh, you know, obviously um, you've got a Twitter page, uh, it's got a, 79,000 followers, and uh, which is a fraction of what you have had on Instagram, but that's not all that surprising. It's only been a couple of years, but um, maybe people watching this will follow you because I've got, I kind of skew Twitter, Twitter word more than Instagram word. So, uh, you know, it, you want to build out on social media, obviously, and you want to network. You and I have been talking for a while you know you're, you're trying to you know trying to to build relationships with people are there any like institutions or companies or personalities that you're looking at as you know potential part i mean I, like what, what what kind of things are you thinking of or are you, are you even thinking yeah, I, I hope I'm thinking. <laughs> and I, I do think about this like almost uh, 24 hours a day. It's very unhealthy at this point. Uh, and um, we, we want to grow, of course. And I've changed the way that I looked uh, at the whole business since I started it, for example. Like uh, social media is not really reliable anymore, specifically with censorship and everything that's going on. I think Elon Musk might have changed X a little bit in terms of uh, ensuring that you're not going to get censored on there. But in terms of actually reaching people that follow you, 
you're still kind of beholden to an algorithm on Instagram. It's the same case on Facebook. It's the same case, except in those latter two, you also might get banned and suspended, et cetera, et cetera. So we're trying to build an audience that's we're able to keep um, a big way that we've been able to do that is by building a daily newsletter. And so like that first and foremost is what we are right now. We might have social media and we use that to uh, get the word out there and to be able to report on some stories. But in terms of how our readers interact with us on a daily basis, it's really mostly through this daily email brief that we send out. And so this email that we send out, we have paid subscriptions, right? Uh, the screen that you're showing. The daily email, we send it out and it's supposed to, in less than five minutes, get you up to speed on all of the stories that are happening that are important, uh, but with a really intense focus on the insights that the mainstream media doesn't cover. And so like, that's a really big mission that we have on there is we wanna make sure that we're covering stories, but we're not reinventing the wheel Instead, we're focusing on exactly what might these media giants be missing. And the result actually has been really cool. We created the newsletter as a way to just keep every single American out there informed. Um, but unintentionally, we've had a lot of really influential people in the conservative political space, uh, people that have podcasts, people that are working in Congress and think tanks, et cetera, et cetera. They've started to read the daily newsletter too. And so we're kind of uh, between... Uh, I guess a morning brew, which is just like a, a product for people that want to know what's going on with business and in the middle of uh, like a political playbook where we're actually covering important political insights that are useful to people that are regular Americans and also working in the space. So that's like first and foremost, our biggest focus right now. We're growing this out. We're going to be focused on getting more scoops, more original reporting in terms of uh, breaking stories that other people don't have yet. Uh, but in terms of like, growing a media business it is notoriously hard like i think everyone can look at every single media startup of like the past two years like there's been very few ones that are actually successful uh the messenger that just launched and they had like 50 million dollars of seed funding something a crazy number like that um they're panicking right now like they're out of money they've been functioning for only a few months and so in terms of like creating a media business it is insanely hard um, i'll say this much they, they must they really are failing because i never i never mm -hmm. heard of them until this just this this second when you mentioned them 50 50 million dollars uh is a lot of money to i mean i i don't know everything but i i never heard of them and what's their it's they're just trying to be another news outlet what are they trying to do that's different from you is it a different orientation yeah well so they're kind of looking at the world through the lens of like what the inner the, the news and the internet used to be like 10 years ago where things are supposedly like objective and they're able to cover everything um and they're also able to get a really really large amount of readership and that's really not the way that media works anymore. So even though I would love Upward News to be the size of the Wall Street Journal in the next 10 years, the reality is, is that at least in this point of time, uh, the news industry is much more fragmented. And so you still I mean, have your giants. About, you know, I'm sure you're well aware of this. I mean, about five years ago, or sometime between 10 and five years ago, the New York Times decided it was no longer going to try. It, it, it fired its public editor and said we subscriptions are where it's at and we've got a very large base that will subscribe to us if we reliably pander to their preconceived notions and give up on any notion of objectivity that's a business model because the business model that they were operating in 
as you point out, was was not working. People not, once people stopped buying newspapers, the online the the online model, at, you know, to 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 be a reliable reporter of all the news that's fit to print wasn't going to happen. Yeah, that's right. I think there's multiple different ways to make money as a media company and every single business model has serious problems. So for example, you go the advertisement route and then you just look like uh, CNN and MSNBC and you can't criticize uh, vaccine manufacturers because half of your advertisements come from the vaccine industry or those big pharmaceutical companies. Uh, or you go the route which the New York Times has uh, leaned into recently, which is paid subscriptions. Um, and at that point, I mean, if you say things that your paid subscribers don't want to see, you start losing them. Um, in terms of the New York Times readers, and this is something that's been noted by people that formerly worked at the New York Times, is that their readers want to see a specific perspective of the world. Um, and they don't like seeing things that don't really align with the way they view the world already. And so there's a lot of limitations there. For example, like if the New York Times was to go and start talking about how the migration uh problem in America is like an absolute catastrophe and here's who's responsible for it. Here's how we fix it. Um, I don't think the readers would like that. And whenever the New York Times has something that is even like remotely centrist, people accuse it of being incredibly biased. Um, I think there was a couple months back, maybe even a year ago, where the New York Times finally started reporting on some of the problems with like the way that Americans talk about transgenderism, specifically with transitions um, in the science community. And they essentially had an article where they pointed out some of these critiques that are coming from the right actually have merit and people freaked out. Um, not only did people freak out, but also a lot of the journalists within the New York Times. And so all of this just goes to show is you can try to build uh, one of these media businesses in those ways, or you try to get money from very rich billionaires that want to fund the whole thing, you're always going to have a conflict of interest. And so I think really uh, the most important thing here is to be able to trust the people that are reporting, not like an institution like itself, like the New York Times. There's really nobody there to trust. It feels almost decentralized in the way that it's run. Uh, but if you look at the Daily Wire, for example, people that trust Ben Shapiro, people that trust Jeremy Boring, I think that's much better for a kind of reader to um, outlet relationship rather than just looking at, well, who's funded by them, who, which advertisers are they working with, et cetera, et cetera, because it's very expensive to produce news and to be able to run a media company. Uh, and like I said, there's just no good way, I think, at this point to have it funded. Well, you've got, you got your hands full, but you've got a good running start. You've got a quarter million followers on uh on instagram uh you say you're being you know picked up by more and more influential people so i suppose sharing by them is an important part of the strategy what do you i mean what's the secret sauce what do you think is gonna is, is it gonna be good enough to just do a good enough job to do a better job better, faster, cheaper, uh, you know, given network effects, given all the challenges, what, what do you think you're going to have to do to, to crack through? So the most important thing for us is our articles and the content that we put out. Like that's, that's the most critical thing to us. I think a lot of companies and media companies, specifically when they're trying to focus on scaling, they forget that the only reason they really should exist is to put out good content. And so 
the whole entire point of Upward News is to be able to produce really fantastic articles, uh, make sure that we're capturing the truth, make sure that we're able to write this in a way that people enjoy reading it. And so all of our focus at the end of the day is going straight back into that. And so when we look at the whole business, it's, okay, well, how do we bring in more revenue so that we can hire more writers so that we can put out more content, better content, so that we can produce world-class journalism that will never be in the New York Times because of their ideological problems, but still incredibly vital for people to know what's going on. So that's that's the, the formula that we're trying to crack here. That's the problem. Um, but in the way we're looking at it, we're not focused on becoming the biggest, uh, most revenue uh, producing company in the world or anything like that. It's really just our mission that we have here. Well, I wish you the best of luck with it. And I, hopefully you and I will have more to talk about as time goes on. And uh, now that I'm a subscriber, uh, maybe you'll get a share from me from time to time. I'm not that big of an influencer and I'm certainly shadow banned, but crazy things have happened. Um, everybody, uh, Upward News is on Twitter. I showed you where. It's exactly what you would think. Upward News on Instagram. What other... What other People should go to the website, right? And yeah. and uh, try out the free newsletter and love it so much that they give you money. It's they expensive. can go to com. That'll send them directly to the sign-up page. I like that. I like that kind of thinking. Let's see. Let's let's do it together. Let's watch. Let's watch the redirect in real time. Okay, no framing. There it is. Want to see? Want to see something else? Want to see another cute redirect? Uh oh, it's too slow. There it is. It's genius. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. Yeah, great minds think alike. I, I might have to redirect it though. To uh, I'm not so sure what Harmie thinks of that. So maybe we'll redirect it to the personal professional website. All right, Ari. Thanks for coming on. We'll be talking more, and uh, I wish you the best of luck. It's a great story, and uh, you know, let's um, let's stay in touch. Absolutely, thank you so much, Ron. You're welcome. Hey, thank you for listening to the Coleman Nation podcast. Don't forget to subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast app. If you like the show, please rate it five stars and leave a review. For more information, please visit the show's website at coleman-nation.com. That's coleman-nation.com. Or you can visit my blog at likelihoodofconfusion.com. Join us next time on the Coleman Nation podcast and have a great day.